Thanks for joining us for the Changing the Industry podcast, where we try to effectuate change for the better one conversation at a time. Part of that change is providing help for those that need it. This is why we've partnered with the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Whether it's help with sales, operations, or just getting your numbers in order, these folks are some of the very best in the industry. And for our listeners, they'll sit down with you and go over your strengths, your weaknesses, and the opportunities that are in front of you. They'll create a customized plan for how to move forward absolutely free. That's right, free. And if your plan includes one-on-one coaching, they can also help you with that. There's no hard sales pitch, no obligation, just honest help from honest people. So if that's something that you think could benefit you, make sure you click on the link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Mike, I, I don't know that you need an introduction. You want to tell everybody who you are, though? Sure, sure. I didn't think I was that famous. No, you're pretty famous, bro. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not infamous. <laughs> right? That's this guy. So, uh, yeah, I'm Mike Christofferson. Uh, I've uh, lived in Utah most of my life. Okay. Uh, grew up in a family of techs. My uncles were all techs. Uh, yeah. And uh, I... Uh, Decided to follow in the footsteps somewhat. My idea was to become an automotive engineer. Mm -hmm. So uh, after high school, I took college courses at Weber State University. Man, what an awesome program, right? It it, it was, even back then. I mean, we're talking 1985. Yeah. So it was changed a lot, but man, it isn't. I mean, the YouTube channel? I haven't seen that yet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, But I know they have a lot of good good yeah. uh, instructors and oh, up yeah. there. And uh, so I, I attended there and then I fell in love. Right. And uh, once that happened, uh, I became one of those dropouts, college dropouts. So I got two years in. Right. And uh, I ended up going in to be, a, decided to be a tech because okay. it was an easier way to get in and make money. And I jumped from shop to shop and opportunity to opportunity. Okay. Uh, did some other things. I did some furniture sales. Uh, I worked for a couple of uh, companies that make uh, scan tools. Okay. And uh, went out and sold scan tools. And when I did that, I became absolutely fascinated with programming and lab scopes. Okay. So uh, once I started doing that, uh, it it the the illness started. It just took off. <laughs> right. So, so I am a tool junkie. Yeah. And to support my habit, I do EEPROM work and programming and whatever I can to, to talk my son, who's my business partner right now in, into, uh, into letting me buy more tools. Well, you know, that's pretty cool. The son's in the business now that yeah. that's a neat concept for sure. Now, before we started recording, right, you brought up something. We had a panel last night. Yes. And you said, hey, I, I'm your initial comment, and, and so our, our listeners are used to us being brash, so you can be as brash as you want. But your initial comment was, I'm usually anti-owner. And then you went on to explain what that meant for you. Yes. And in that panel, we had some discussions about how techs are treated. And you were saying that you typically see this from the tech perspective. Tell me a little bit about what you thought of that panel last night and what it what it said to you. Well, I I uh, I think a lot of those owners would be 
a lot better owners to work for than the owners that I have worked with in the past. Right. Uh, I did have a one owner that uh, treated me like a partner at first, and then he hired a consultant. Yeah. And then I became an employee, and my pay dropped, my opportunity dropped, and it, it was downhill from there. Right. And that's kind of when I went into other things. Yeah. So. Well, you know, one of the things that I think has been eye-opening for David and I when we started this show is we talked to a lot of techs. We're friends with a lot of techs. But I, I don't think that we had as much of a perception of how bad it can be for some techs in the industry until we started the show, right? Because we we had only been in our experiences. I wasn't a career tech, right? I, I started my shop. He, he was in parts. And so I don't think we had a true understanding or perspective that showed how bad it was because we were saying things and techs were coming to us and saying, man, you just don't know how it really is. You just haven't seen what we go through and what we experience. And I think that's true for all trades. I don't just think it's our trade. I think in a lot of cases, especially big corporations, will will take advantage of people and, and maybe not even mean to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that maybe we were a little blind to that, right? I wasn't. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you, you never think you're blind to anything. Well, so. there you go. See? So I, I knew exactly what they were saying. <laughs> so i mean what what's the solution then what what's your thought because you you're talking about how you were treated in shops what were the things that really stood out to you well i think uh when, when we talked uh in the round table last night flat rate was brought up yeah and the the fear uh i believe the fear of shop owners is is if i pay my guy's salary or a base plus bonus right uh that my guys are going to slow down I think in some cases it would be good if they did slow down because then we wouldn't have so many bad diagnostics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really loved diagnostics and hanging parts. I could do it. I could make a lot of money at it, Mm -hmm. but where I really excelled was diagnostics. Right. And in the situations I was in, that didn't pay. It hurt me. Right. Right. 0.5 and, and one for, you know, pretty advanced stuff. Even, even, yeah. Which rarely happened. Yeah. You never can beat it. Right. If you do a brake job on a particular car 20, 30 times, you're pretty fast and efficient yeah. at it. Yeah. You can do two, three, four times flat rate. Right. You can't beat flat rate with diagnostics. That's true. So so the solution I would have is if you have a diagnostic guy, mm-hmm. pay him a salary. Right. And and a salary above and beyond anybody else in the shop. Right, because it's hard work. It, it's very taxing on the brain. You have to do a lot of study. Right. Uh, for this EPROM stuff, I spend four hours a night on the internet studying. Wow. And it's, and it's more than just studying cars. It's studying chips. It's studying right. all kinds of things, collaboration with other techs. So it's, it's a big deal. The, and the I, problem with the salary thing is that the financial... St- Still don't work. I, well, even if you, even if you, it works in a shop where you have maybe five techs. One's a diag guy, and that diag guy is feeding the other four techs. And and they're the what's supplementing the diagnostic testing fee is the the parts hanging. So you may you may charge three hundred dollars to figure out that this module is bad 
and modules 0.5 to install. You're not going to give it to that, tech, to that technician, the dia guy, because he's got to move on to some other testing. There's not going to be that much markup on the module. But what you're trying to do is hopefully you can sell brakes, suspension, gaskets, whatever else. Lucas and I have been telling you about Parts Tech for a while now and how it gives you access to unlimited parts and tire vendors and direct integration with over 35 shop management systems. And now they've just launched a new referral program. All you have to do is open your Parts Tech account, go to My Shop, and click on the Rewards tab. There you'll find your referral URL, which you can share via email, text message, or on your social media. If your referral signs up for a new account and places five orders in the first 30 days, Parts Tech will send you a $100 gift card. That's it. Nothing else is needed. Your referrals can get you $100 just for using Parts Tech, which, by the way, is absolutely free to get started with. So if you're using Parts Tech already, start sharing that referral link. And if you haven't signed up for Parts Tech yet, what are you waiting for? Click on the link in the description or go to partstech.com forward slash podcast. That's partstech.com forward slash podcast. Hey, one more thing. If you find out that your shop management system doesn't integrate with Parts Tech, it's time to upgrade. David and I use what we believe to be the very best system on the market, Shopware. With unmatched features like Parts GP Optimizer and DVX, which is their digital vehicle experience, Shopware really is way more than just a shop management software. With it, you'll be able to create an immersive and interactive experience for your client, setting you apart from everyone else using run-of-the-mill software. Are you ready to upgrade? Click the link in the show notes to get started. Also, other than just that one repair. Because otherwise, you're having to charge to justify the salary for the, for the, the direct tech. You need, you still need some type of consistent return. You see what I'm saying? The, the, you still have to have that 70 30 split with that guy there. Now, if you have an 85 15 split with your other four guys and that guy is 50 50, then, then you can maybe make the math work. But without that 70 30 split, you, the math just will not work. The math does not work. Well, I, so I think that the the root of the problem, though, is that the consumer at the end of the day has not been trained or it's, not it's been entirely, taught. That's the, entirely the problem. That that we're valuable, right? And so I I said last night, I think we're 20 not, or 30 years behind the other trades. I think if they knew what we were doing, yeah, they would value it. If they knew what he was doing, if they knew, like, Hey, you gotta you gotta hook these teeny tiny wires into this tiny little chip, just so you can extract some information out of it to then jam it into this other thing. Like if they had any clue what you were doing, they would go, "Okay, well, how much is that? It's a thousand bucks. Okay, what are my alternatives? It's that or nothing because that module is no longer available, or that module is on six month back order, and you're not getting to drive this car without that." that module replaced. So I've got to get use one out of some Brando car and, and I've got to then make it so it'll work on your car. It's a thousand bucks and it's going to, you know, take whatever, three, four hours for the guy to do and the use modules, hundred bucks, whatever. But the markup there will justify if they knew they don't know, right? They don't know. And the reason they don't know is because it's the Pareto 
principle, right? 80% of the shops are plugging in the little dongle thing, reading the scanner, says cam- camshaft position sensor circuit malfunction. What do they do? They just throw a camshaft in there, Sen- camshaft sensor in there, and it fixes it 60, 70% of the time. Then out the door they go, and they'll charge a one-hour diag fee, right? And they threw the part on there, 0.3, it's Ford, because <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then... You know, they mark up the part or whatever, and the whole ticket's maybe 500 bucks, and the customer just thinks that that's the process 100% of the time. And that isn't the process 100% of the time. That's the process 30% of the time. And the rest of the time, we get screwed. The shop owners, the shops get screwed on the fees because it the, the customer just does not understand what it is that we have to do to properly diagnose and the amount of training and yada, yada, and so on and so forth. So the math just cannot work if you have a Diag guy just doing Diag at a salary. It just, it doesn't work. Now, I say that, but what I've done, oh my guys a salary. Oh my guys a salary. I don't necessarily pay them these ridiculous salaries that these yahoos around here just throw these numbers out there like they're all meaningful. They're not. It's all relative, but they're well paid, right? But I have to rely on my my the EPROM guy that I've got. He's been to your class, right? And he got, he's very much like you. Like he got into it, and I wanna I wanna figure out hexadecimal, this, that, and the other, and he he got into it, right? And I'm just buying him a quick because he gets excited, I get excited. And I'm a tool junkie too, and I'm like, "Ooh, I want that toy too." <laughs> right. What's it do? It only does a seven two two dot nine transmission module refresh. It doesn't do anything else, and it's four hundred dollars. Yeah, go ahead and get it. Let's let's buy it. It's whatever. I can I can rely on him to diagnose a vehicle, right? And he's still fairly new to the industry, so there's a little bit of like, "Hey, we need to we need to streamline." 60, 70%, I think the diagnostic testing that we do can be streamlined into being very efficient. It's the it's those anomalies that end up eating our lunch, right? But we can mitigate that if we can streamline the 60, 70%, right? And so he, we're still working through that. But the the only way the economics work is that he still has to hang parts. Like I'm happy to pay him his salary. He's worth every penny. But you got to hang parts, dude. Like, I get that you want to diagnose this car. Diagnose this car for me. But by the way, I need you to also do the brakes and steering suspension and that gasket and the rear end differential service and the transmission service. Because that $4,000 ticket overall is going to pay my bills, right? And, yeah, there was a $250, $300 diet charge on there. And we paid you. Again, it's not flat rate. But. It's got 1.7 build hours on it for diag testing. That's the only the one diag guy in the shop thing. It is is I mean, a it model might work in a bigger shop though. But he even if it, the economics might work in a bigger shop, right? So then you end up with a, a Bill Adams who looks at it and it's like, okay, well, I just have to scale. That's all I got to do. I just got to scale up. It's never going to work in a two man shop, two tech shop, right? Owner, two techs working. You're screwed there. Forget it. That's never going to happen. So he's got to go to all just B-Techs and all we're going to do is hang parts because it's the only way he's going to make any money. 
the the problem though is that bill adams then is and now i'm looking at it from an owner standpoint i'm held hostage by that diet guy now you can say well just keep him happy it's like dude okay what is it 50 percent of marriages end in divorce right i'm not making a lifelong commitment in front of god and family to to be with this person for the rest of my life this is an employee right and you can say partner this that and it like you can say all that but unless that guy came in and ponied up cash upon cash yeah <laughs> unless that guy uh came in and was dumping hard-earned money that he had saved up to buy into the business yeah i mean you're we're all my employees are partners with me in that my success is their success their success is my success we are all in this together in that sense but as far as like if we go belly up who's the government coming after for the liabilities like it's me that's my name on it i signed for it It, you just go get another job so we can say partner all that stuff but it just will not work in a small shop and i'm and i'm held hostage by that one diet guy in my shop that one diet guy is feeding my three or four other techs that guy leaves at any point for anything all right has a medical emergency has a uh, yeah, that, yeah medical emergency family uh, uh you know wife wants to move to to some other part of the country whatever like all of a sudden i i and I, they don't I, fall off of trees it's not like you know oh i can just go hire another one like no dude like the hardcore guys like you're talking about the ones that were really into it those those guys are one in a million right one in a million. you're a one in a million yeah so so may i make some some observations. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's what we're here for. So, so I, I understand from a shop owner's perspective, because I'm a business owner now too. Yeah. And I have employees. Yeah. Uh, I understand the perspective of, uh, dollars and cents. Yeah. I mean, P and L and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, I will say though, even though I discourage it, I still have shop owners call me that I do programming for to come and do diagnostics. And whatever I tell them, they pay me. Right. How they make that work financially, I don't know, but I'm not cheap. I charge more for my work mobily than they charge for their flat rate. Right. So uh, I'm sure they don't charge the customer, but I charge them. They absorb it in their advertising budget or whatever. But they're willing to pay me a premium rate to come in and solve their problem. And I'm not... I'm not always a hundred percent. Nobody is right. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, most of the time, I get my guy. Yeah. So if they can afford to pay me triple or quadruple what they're paying their tech, then there must be a little wiggle room somewhere. Yeah. There's a little wiggle room because they're not calling you six times a day. Right. I'm not there full Every, time. Yeah. yeah. Correct. That that's the you're, that, you're solving the emergent problems that they can't solve. It's right? it's a I get this car out of my life fee. So that's, maybe that's for what the, it is. The two man shop, maybe that's a solution. Yeah. A mobile guy. Now a lot of guys call that a crutch or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's like calling the surgeon yeah. when you need to get an operation done. A general sure. practice is not going to do that. I think the only reason why the mobile anything is has emerged is because two things 
the fat part of the bell curve of technicians just want to hang parts. They just they want to smashy bear it in and out, and that's it. That's yeah. all they want to do. You have that. You have this massive need for skill, skilled diagnosticians, massive need for skilled diagnosticians. And then the few skilled diagnosticians that are out there are getting screwed by their shops. Yeah. The shop doesn't yep. value them. The shop doesn't understand what it is that they have to do. They don't, they don't get it. They just see dollars and cents. Yeah. And so what do they do? Like it's the Zach McLean, right? Yeah. It's it, the Zach could be, well, maybe not him at this point, but he's beyond that. But he could at some point have been in a good shop as the diagnostician or a diagnostician amongst several in that shop, just banging out work all day long and be perfectly happy. But he just kept getting screwed and screwed and screwed. And he got to the point where he's like, I'm not going to go work for somebody else because this is just a pattern here. I'm right. seeing there's only so many times you can do it and not say, absolutely. This is going to keep. So, so many of them got screwed. They just saw, Hey, you know, that shop doesn't have a diagnostician. That one, that one, that one. I'm not going to go work for just one of them. I'm going to go work for all of them. And then they load up their van and they go from shop to shop. But even then, I mean, how many times has Matt Scundrich talked about how hard it is to get them to pay him? Because the, the shop is a throw the part on there, didn't fix it, call Matt kind of shop, right? He shows up and he's like, it's 275 bucks for me to open the hood and even look at it. For me even drive out there, 275 bucks. I need that paid off front. And they're like, oh, no, this, this should be pretty simple. Should only take you an hour. They don't have a clue. That's the I, shop telling them that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, the shop. And and here's the thing is I, I think that that's what we have to change, right? That's what has to change because, A, it's the consumer perspective. It's the shop perspective in a lot of cases, right? Uh, and and you heard Cecil say last night, like, some shops need to close. 100%. Absolutely. Some shops need to close. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, and I've, I've talked to a lot of of I don't, I don't want to categorize and say it's older shop owners, but I've talked to a lot of shop owners who are very set in their ways, and they say, well, you know, here's the thing. I remember what they did to washing machines. The washing machine used to be $350, $400 to fix, and a new one was $1,000. And now a new one's $1,000, and it's $1,000 to fix the one you've got. So they have this perspective that eventually we're going to hit this glass ceiling, and I can't really charge that to fix it. I... I think in a lot of ways, the chain stores, though, and maybe it's not just chain stores, but there's there's some of these bigger shops who are are mills, right? Let's think of them as mills, and they're really just production. Get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. And, and their mindset is, I'm going to charge as little as I can, so I get more of them in. I'm going to pay as little as I can, so I make more money, right? I'm going to use the cheapest parts, and all I'm going to do is move those cars through the shop. And then two years ago happens. Right, and and that's where I, EEPROM had always been around, but that's when it, in my opinion, really started taking off. Because yeah, now all of a sudden, like, this is this is not no longer a niche thing. This right. is now an absolutely necessary. Right, and, and because we can't fix the car, right, and so these shops are like, well, well, eh, what do we do now? Well, we can't fix the car. Well, there's no module. No, Maybe you can't get parts. No, so now the car is effectively a washing machine. They're going to have to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, that's not an option anymore. Well, so that takes the effectiveness of that smash and burn model and throws it in the trash. 
Because if if we get to the point that you can't get a part for a car, and I... The smash and burn model is still wildly profitable. It is. It is on on 90% of stuff. But I think the modern automobile is changing at such a rate. And I think we are so... How long is it going to take? I'll put you on the spot. (laughs) How how long is it going to take for the smash and burn to go down? Yes. I don't think it'll ever go down because there will always be brakes and and timing belts. and A brakes on a hybrid? Yeah. Every what? So what are you doing? You're taking off and lubing? Cleaning and lubing for what? What are you going to charge for that? 100 bucks, maybe? You're not putting any parts on it, right? So what do you do? Like fewer fluids. You're not doing oil changes, so you're not going to see the car three times a year. And, I mean, the the thing is, is that the technicians who – have not continued to grow their their ability, right? Like, would you want uh, would you want somebody at Jiffy Lube going into an HV system? I mean, no, dude. I'm I'm telling you, I, if I was Jiffy Lube, that's the last thing I would want to be. You know, yeah, people I mean, don't know. Like, what, what was that, uh, David? What's his face um, from? I didn't. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so that's why I call him What's His Face. But from St. Louis, Spirit One Automotive, he he got a drop off. And the lady had circled that her Nissan Leaf needed to be checked for emissions. <laughs> they didn't, she didn't know. <laughs> and you know what? There's, pro- there's probably is a, an emissions test that needs to be ran. In St. Louis, let's check it for codes. So if all the readiness monitors are ran and there's no codes, it's pa- it passes. What are you right? trying to say about Missouri? <laughs> not, not Missouri. St. Louis. Oh, okay. Just St. Louis. They're so incompetent there. <laughs> they probably do have a, hey, you still need to check the car for emissions. It's an electric vehicle. There are no emissions. Oh, you still need to check it, you know, for a check engine light. It's like, okay. But even if I do have a check engine light, what do I have? Like a, a voltage problem in one of the modules? Like, what, what am I checking for here? Are you still in the, the losses? <laughs> Competent. Uh so, and the, the, uh, maybe suspension. So brakes are going to be gone. Suspension gaskets are going to be mostly tires. gone. Tires, but then that becomes an issue because you've got only tire stores getting to do tires, right? I'm not going to compete against the discount tire. I, I can't. They've got it down to a science. Those tires are in and out in 30 minutes on that on that car. 30 minutes. They just that's a. I, I mean, do you feel like manufacturers have created a situation of planned obsolescence in an automobile? I mean, is that there's, there's no way? I understand there is here. They probably do, but then we just like the credit crisis is coming, and I think we hit an all time high just recently in credit card debt yep. in this country. Car payments hit and, an all time high. The interest rates have skyrocketed on. On vehicles, and no longer can you do a zero percent financing or two point nine percent financing on a vehicle. So the vehicles have to get more expensive because of the amount of technology they're jamming into the car. So that SUV that was thirty five thousand dollars is now fifty thousand dollars. They cannot get the credit at a decent enough rate to purchase that vehicle. So they have to stay in their ten or twelve or fifteen model car. They have to fix it. They have to fix it. Well, even if it's $10,000 to fix that, that turd, it's a Jeep, Grand Cherokee, and it needs $12,000 in work because they all do, right? It's 50000 for a new one. 
What are you going to go buy a used one that has the same problems? Guess what? That that one's going to need $12,000 in work too. They all do. So what are you going to do? I, you know, and, and I I think even beyond that, right? Like, so we look at at what you do, right? And we talk about EEPROM and we think, well, okay, you can't get this module. You can't get this part. And, and a very small subset of shops around the world are able to do what you do. Makes sense. Like very, very few. I mean, what, less than 1% of all the shops in the country, maybe Mm -hmm. a quarter of a percent, possibly. We found another shop in St. Louis that I think that was doing or in Kansas City. But I mean, I guess the the question is, is a lot of these shops, they should be charging a premium for that service. That should be a very, very expensive service, right? Because if, if the module is $2,000, but you can't get the module, it stands to reason for me that now all of a sudden that repair is worth $3,000 or whatever it is, right? That's what the market dictates. Yet I've seen these shops charging basic door rate and basic diag rates to provide that service, which devalues the service across the board. I mean, there's some shops like specialist, right? We sent a Mercedes module off the other day that had to be fixed. And, and so that was expensive to get it fixed, of course. But I'm saying like the more people that learn it, if they have the opportunity to devalue it, how do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think the, the market kind of lets you know what you can charge. I mean, I hate to think of the idea I got somebody over a barrel, so I'm going to take advantage of course. Of course. Uh, but we, I mean, our, our pricing, let's say a module is $1,000, uh, we might be 500 bucks. Okay. Uh, especially if they, pro- if they provide the part. Right. Because that takes away our liability. They provide, provide the part and it's got a bad driver, it's not our fault. Yeah. If we provide the part, it's going to be more because we have to stand behind the part. Right. So uh, there's there's that. Uh, I think about, you know, we have EVs and, and hybrids and that kind of thing out there. But you talk to somebody that, that lives out in the middle of Idaho right. or Montana or Wyoming away from uh, electric fueling station, away yeah. from the freeway, mm-hmm. they're not going to buy into electric. Yeah, they're they're yeah. gonna still want their diesel truck. They're gonna still want their gas motor, as long as they can buy fuel. That's keep what they're on, gonna do. They're yeah. gonna fix those. Well, and, and on top of that, right? So we've we've seen the models that say twenty thirty five fifty percent of production will be EV or hybrid, right? Well, I mean, if in twenty thirty five fifty percent is production, even if it's seventy percent, that still means. I mean, right now we're working on twelve year old vehicles. I mean, that's the average. So it's not like we're gonna be working on these vehicles tomorrow i I mean we we work on some right but it's not like they're the majority of the fleet the majority of the fleet's still going to be ice right yep and and so i mean i i i wonder if we're getting to the point you know you think of um you think of cuba you think of russia you think of you know the the old ussr and you think of the vehicles that are in their fleets Boys that are 50 and 60 and 70 years old in some cases, right? And and they still maintain them and they still keep up with them. I just I'm curious. I, I, I think EPROM is going to be the way that we go. I, I know that Americans love their new cars, but I think it's really going to be the the wave of the future for shops. But I mean, you're not going to take just any old average technician and put them on EPROM work. Right? Like it is a different ballgame. We should be able to take any old technician. Just like we do to do a brake job, like hey, like you be able to do e prom work. You just bars in, 
What'd you call it? Churn and burn? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the churn and burn model with with what's driving traffic is, is cheap oil changes and just like discount alignments and that that's what's driving the traffic and he and he calls me and he's like hey uh are you looking for a gs and i told him i said dude i don't have gs's all my guys need to be proficient they don't do all eprom work because not some of them aren't interested but they should all be able to diagnose 60 70 percent of the cars that come in and they should be able to handle any repair all my guys and I, and I I started asking him a few questions, and he's like, "Yeah, I really got excited about working on cars, and I got into the industry, but they've got me doing oil changes and alignments all day, and tires, and I cannot get off this rack." I've asked, and I'm like, "They won't let you do some gaskets, timing belts, because that's what they do." He's like, "No, man, they will not let me do it," and the reason is the model, their financial model doesn't allow them to, because the minute you start doing timing belts. You're not going to want to get paid 15 bucks an hour anymore or 20 bucks an hour anymore. All of a sudden, it's 25, 27, 30, and they can't afford that. They're doing $19 oil changes. So what are they going to do to this kid? So I told them, I said, I sign up for standard and a premium, pay the $99 or whatever. Start down this path because if you want to make any money and you want to be indispensable in this industry, this, hey, I can do tires is not going to be the thing. We're going to have robots doing tires here soon. Yeah. Like, we don't need more tire changers. We need a guy that can diagnose why that tire machine's not working. <laughs> yeah. Yep, 100%. <laughs> but that's that's who's coming into the industry is he's thinking, I'm going to I'm gonna hang parts. It's like, no, dude, this industry hanging parts has to go away. That's not this industry anymore. I I almost wonder. You know, so let's think about who the high school instructors are. Let's think about who the college instructors are. Now, some of the college instructors are, are pretty elite, high-level guys. But think about what it would be if if somebody had your knowledge or if somebody was talking about EPROM in high school, right? Because now all of a sudden we're talking about a skill set that's beyond fixing a car, right? We're talking about a pretty advanced skill set. And and if you could get those kids excited about something like that. Yeah. Why don't they have a board capacitor and resistor or diode desoldering and resoldering on boards on automotive modules in high school? I, I mean, they used to have yeah. electronics classes. Yeah. But 30, I'm saying like years ago, smush them together. Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, I thought we were going to change oils. No, 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 no. I'm going to show you how to change capacitors on these boards because they all blow up. Like what? Yeah. Well, it's like Eric's class at our high school, right? You really dig into what he does. And and the the class has always been like we've always had a, a good program, right? But when he came in and and he started setting up the advisory board and we're all going in and we're meeting and, and he's bringing in the guidance counselor saying, look, I want you to hear what these people have to say because this is not – the industry that you think it is. This is not what we were doing 20 years ago. You know, he was a, a Volvo master. Yeah. And so the majority of his work was complex Volvo problems. And we know how complex Volvo <laughs> problems can be, right? Oh, the whole wiring harness just disintegrated. Oops. <laughs> you know, my bad. But see, I'm just talking bad about Land Rover. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the thing is, is that all of a sudden that class is full. 
Why is the class full? Well, because they understand, the guidance counselors now understand that the technology that they're working on is not just something that's relegated to an automobile. It's not that I'm a grease monkey. It's that this, you know, I'll never forget watching a Scanner Danner video. And he said, if you can, if you can fix a car, you can fix your washing machine. You can fix your HVAC system. You can fix because the same principles that work in this work in everything in your life, one way or another. The, you know, we've talked to Jim Kokonis about the deductive reasoning and the different types of reasoning and how do we think and how do we think through that. This is a skill set that if we can get them to teach that very young, if we can get them to teach that in middle school and in high school, this is not just winning at automotive repair. This is winning at life, right? This is a situation where when these kids come out, if they have these skills, everything from fixing their own car to life problems they're thinking about it completely different than they ever have before. We're giving them the skills that make them successful in life. And so is it education's failed us? I mean, you know, I've, I've talked before about that the, our education system that we have now is very much like a, a factory setting. It's a production line. And what's most important is your date of manufacture, right? And we just push them through this system. And here's what you have to know. And here's how it is. And everybody's the same. And so we all know the same thing. We all do the same thing. Maybe it's time that... that the education system has to be reformed and and maybe that's part of the problem that's leading to where we're at right now with the automotive industry. Well, critical thinking is something that I think is lacking in in our schools. I, I remember when I was in elementary school, they talked to us about base 16, which is hexadecimal. Right. I, I didn't grasp it in third grade. Right. Uh, but I use it now all the time and, yeah. and I have to try and understand it. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's like a puzzle. It's kind of fun, actually. Yeah. It, it It's very, very interesting. And the thing is, is your brain works that way. Mine does not, right? That's just not the way mine works. There was a guy, uh, his name was Ken Robinson, right? And he, he passed away recently. And he had all kinds of kooky and wacky ideas. But he's the one who really opened my eyes to our education system. And is our education system broken? Is that is that what we have going on right now? Is this a damaged educational system that's causing the root of where we're at? Um, and, you know, I, I, I told a story last night on the panel. I was talking about a guy who I, I was in a restaurant and I overheard him talking about his career in HVAC and, and all of the things that he had been through. And I thought, well, damn, that sounds just like what we've been saying about automotive. And then I start paying attention. I get into some plumber groups and into some electrician groups, and they're all saying the same thing. Is it that we've devalued the blue-collar worker to the point that, that A, they can't earn a living, and that, B, they're not respected, and they're the ones who built the country, right? Like, at the end of the day, the guy's paving the road. The guy's building the bridge. The guy's building the buildings. The guy's wiring and plumbing the buildings are the ones who made the rest of this possible. And it might be great and well to be an attorney. It might be great and well to be a doctor. And, and those people are needed too. But they're not the ones who made the country what it is. They're not the yeah, – you think back about World War II, right? And, and of all the things that you could say about World War II, the most impressive part of it was the manufacturing machine that this country became, right? I mean, massive, massive manufacturing growth like that. I mean, it was like flipping a light switch, and we were building 1,500 ships a week, right? That's insane. That is absolutely insane. And now we've built our country to where we depend on everybody else. And I don't want to get political or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that we've not put an emphasis 
on this ability. We've not put an emphasis on what it takes to be that blue-collar worker and how they are really what builds the, the economic infrastructure of our country. But I don't know how to change it. I don't know how we fix that. I think baby steps. I mean, and how, how many people call AAA to change? Men call AAA <laughs> to change a tire. Yes. I yeah. taught my daughters how to change tires, and they changed oil in their own yeah. cars too. Yeah. So I I think uh, it's it's you know life skills. Yeah. Uh, last night we were talking about uh, budgeting. Yeah. And how some techs just they they can't handle it. They go yeah. out to that tool truck and see the shiny chrome. Blow every dime they had. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say that I had uh, Craftsman tools in this shop. Yeah. And Absolutely. I didn't, I didn't have the biggest toolbox. I just had a, right. a reasonable toolbox. And what we did is, you know, sometimes it was really lean, but when it was fat, we put that money against our house. Yeah, we paid off our house early. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the kind of skills we need to teach technicians yeah. and people coming up how to keep a checkbook. How to Amen, dude. They, they're not doing it. Yeah. It's not happening. And, and, and you know, that that's the thing is, is even when I was in school, it wasn't being taught. Hmm. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm only 38, but I mean, like that shows you we've had this decline and, and is it that, that I didn't listen? Is it that they didn't teach it? Is it that we don't want to be offensive and tell somebody how to live their life? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Right. Like uh, that something has shifted. Something has caused this. Um, and you know, we always talk about the fact that, that the more money you spend or the more money you make, the more money you'll spend. Right. And, and we've seen that time and time and time again that these guys are going out and they're spending a little bit of money and they say, hey, I got to make more money and they make a little bit more money and it just goes downhill. It just keeps trucking right along. End up in a situation financially to where they're unsustainable, right? And, and that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the shift, um, not even so much with EV, but – but to come back to what you do, let, let's talk about EPROM, right? Equipment-wise, yeah, there's some equipment you've got to buy. But compared to what it takes, by the time you're 30 years old and you're a master-level technician, right? Let's say you're master-level. I know some people will flip out about that. But by the time you get there, that's a chunk of, of tools. That's a chunk of money. $150,000, $200,000 is probably not that unreasonable to think they might have. How much would somebody have to have? If they wanted to have the majority of tools they need, how much would they have to have to go full-blown into EEPROM? EEPROM by itself, probably twenty, thirty thousand. 30000 Right. Uh, but I can tell you, my company that I'm dealing with, with my son, and we have mm -hmm. another programmer, and then we have a guy that does coding for us, uh, we we spend about 50000 a year right. on, on subscriptions. And yeah. new tools. So, right. and that's for three of us. So yeah. it, it's it's expensive. Yeah, I mean that's that's a person's wage in a lot of cases. So. Well, of course, but I mean in the same respect though. Think about the the when we talk about the business level, right? When we get to business level, right? We're talking about substantially more income than what that tech's making as a C level or B level technician. Sure. Right? Yeah. So, so I think EPROM, we, we have to compare apples to apples because now we're talking about generating a lot more income than he would if he was a B technician. He might earn $50,000 a year as a B technician, you know, wherever he's at, however it works out. 
But as an EEPROM guy, he could probably earn substantially more than that. Are, let me ask you this. Are you So you teach this class on EEPROM. Are you – and I know some of the guys that have been in the class, I've, I know that shop owners have been in it. I know that technicians have been in it. I know that some electronic guys I know have been in it. I know that instructors have been in it. So these guys that are going out and starting this, right, they've never done any EEPROM at all. And they're really building their knowledge. They're getting ready to go. They're getting everything set up. They're buying the tools. Are you talking to them about how to charge for this? Is there any structure? Have you talked to any business people that say, here's how to do this? Are you helping them with that too? Uh, not officially, okay. but but I have people reach out to me. How much should I charge for this? Yeah. And it depends on the market. Okay. So, so I have... Uh, a uh, guy up in Idaho, his name's Maxwell. He's breaking in a new area. He's in Idaho Falls. Okay. And Idaho Falls is a very conservative, very farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't like to spend money. Yeah. And so he asked me about an operation. And I said, anytime I clone something, it's at least $300. Okay. And that, and that was established by, you know, other people doing cloning over the yeah. years. They've kind of poisoned the market to, to create this expectation, you yeah. know, 300 bucks is what it is. Right. Uh, so, uh, but he charges that and they complain, but they pay it. Because right. What other options do they have? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that we should take advantage of people, but I don't feel like that's taken advantage at all. I, I don't think it is either. But, but now here's the thing is that, that that fear of taking advantage of people can also become a detriment. Right, like if we let it go too far, we become so worried that we're taking advantage of somebody that we don't charge what we need to be charging to be profitable. Sure. And at that point, you got to step back and say, is this a sustainable business model? Right. Because if I have to charge this to be profitable, right? Because at the end of the day, we take all of our expenses and we take our cost of goods, which is labor, which is parts, whatever it is that we have. At the end of the day, I, I you can make what a healthy day nine percent on the market. Reasonably, you can make 3% on the market every year. I would stand to reason if I'm going to take that kind of liability, I would want at least 15%, right? Because I'm taking way more liability than I am in the market for the most part. I mean, yeah, the market can be risky if you're silly about it. But I mean, owning a business is far riskier. You know, tax liability, you know, general liability. If somebody gets hurt, something happens. We, we're putting it all on the line, sure. right? We're personally putting our lives on the line for this business, and we're giving up a ton to make the business work. So if we don't at least get a return on investment of 15%, right? If we can do that in the market and can get the that eight or nine, it would be silly to take all of our life's hard work and invest it into a business and make 5%. You see what I'm saying? Sure. Like, if I can go out and get a job, and can earn $100,000 a year, and I can dump that money into the market and make 3% on it, God almighty, I'm, why? Okay, I'm selling the shop. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, So if, if we have to back the business away from that financial model, and we say, this is what we've got to charge for it to make that money, yeah, I hear shop owner after shop owner, so I don't want to take advantage of people. I don't want people to think I'm screwing somebody over. I don't want to recommend things they don't need. Well, for God's sakes, don't recommend things they don't need. Right? Fix the car. Sure. Right? If you're going to yeah. recommend something, make sure they need it. Tell them how to maintain their car. Tell them how to keep it reliable. But the people that are saying worth. that, though, aren't, aren't doing any problem work. The people that say, I don't want to take advantage of people, they're not doing any problem work. 
What are they doing? They're hanging, they're hanging brakes. That's what they're doing. And they're, they're machining the rotors. That's what they're doing. Well, I can save the customer a hundred dollars if I machine the rotors. Why are you machining rotors? That's another discussion. Like, well, you're supposed you, to charge for that. Like that's you, that's an hour, right? Yeah, but they don't tack the hour on top of the the brake job. They, they should. Just, they just uh, well, even if they do, they're charging hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> Charge twenty bucks a rotor. Two hundred two hundred dollars. Yeah, twenty bucks a rotor, or, or thirty dollars a rotor, or fifty dollars a rotor. Some part, some shops were taking the the rotors off, taking them to the parts store, and letting the parts store machine them. Like, how long is that car sitting on the rack? What are you doing? Yeah. Just buy new rotors. What What does it cost to have a car on rack? $300 an hour? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, By the time yeah. you figure yeah. Uh, yeah, profit on parts. That, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Opportunity costs. Yeah. yeah. So your, your, your just opportunity cost loans, anywhere from 200 to $400 an hour, just right there. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so you're you're talking about a chunk of change. And and if it comes down to it, if we're not if we're not willing to charge, and I, I guess I guess what set me off on that tirade is that you don't want to take advantage of people, but people are always going to complain about the price, right? Sure, yeah. They, they don't go into Walmart and buy a fifty five inch TV and say, "I feel like this is a little steep." Could you? Right? They might, <laughs> but the point is, is that it doesn't matter. Right, they're not getting anything. They feel right. like they get, they have a sense of control though when they walk into Walmart, Walmart, and they choose that particular TV, where they don't know anything about cars. So you walk, they walk into the shop, and they're they've already they're already apprehensive, thinking I'm going to get screwed over here because I don't know what they're saying, but they're telling me I need to spend a thousand dollars to get this car running, and they're telling me they have to replace this module, but they have to program it, but they're going to use use they're going to use a used module. I don't know what they're even saying. Is it possible that our front counter staff's not been trained? No, some people just don't want to understand. I had this lady come in. This lady comes in. She tells me the car's shaking. It's a Hyundai uh, hybrid. The car shakes. It runs really rough. And the dealer told me I needed ignition coils and spark plugs. I said, okay, well, we'll check it out. We'll get a second opinion. She's like, I just don't want to spend the money with them because they're too expensive. Whatever. We and I said the first thing we do is inspect the vehicle. We we need to get a baseline. We need to understand. So we don't do a lot of Hyundai ignition coils. Just they don't go yeah. bad. Yeah. But I will tell you that almost every single one of these Hyundai's that come in the door don't have any oil in them. And uh, if there's several years that if the car doesn't have any oil, the car doesn't run. It will go into limp mode. It will run terrible. It feels like a misfiring. It probably is. But the car just does not run. I said, so we're going to check that all out. Oh, I don't think that's it. It needs ignition coils, I think. So we pull the car and we do a full inspection. Guess what? No oil. No oil in the car. No oil in the car. Car was empty. She's like, well, it did that before the oil change, and it still did it after the oil change. That's what she had told me at the counter. So like, yeah, it's burning through the oil because it's a Hyundai. That's what they do. They burn oil. Nobody tells them. Nobody tells them. The loop place isn't telling them. The, all the shops that she's been to isn't telling them. The dealership isn't telling them. Who, I'm the guy that looks like the a-hole telling her, hey, your car by design burns oil. Check it more often. Whatever. Anyway, so we call her and we tell her. We don't call her. We send her the, the inspection and then the estimate. 
And she calls, freaking out. She's like, where's the ignition coils? Well, we don't think you need ignition coils. Well, the dealership told me, I understand what the dealership told you, but I don't think we need ignition coils. No codes in the car. The car is out of oil. It needs an oil change, and you need to check the oil more often. You need to shorten the oil change intervals, too. We need to go to 5,000 or 3,500 miles or something like that. And she just starts arguing. The dealership told me I need ignition coils. Can you test the ignition coils? Sure. It's $181 and change to test your ignition coils. Well, what am I paying $181 for to test your ignition coils? We're going to do current ramp testing on the ignition coils. We're going to check secondary on the ignition coils. We'll tell you if the ignition coils are good. But all the evidence in front of us says the ignition coils are fine. Yeah. She was pissed off. She says, I want to talk to the guy I talked to this morning. This one was, was talking to her. So I talked to her. At this, and I have no patience for stuff like this. This is why I have service advice. So I don't have patience. I used to. I used to be like, oh, well, we can check it for free. Like I used to acquiesce. I don't acquiesce anymore. Like I'm in my office. I'm, I'm editing the podcast or doing YouTube videos or something like that. I don't want to be bothered. And I don't want to be bothered answering stupid questions. Ma'am, the reason they told you, I asked her. I said, ma'am. Did you pay for anything when they told you you needed ignition coils? Well, what do you mean? Did you pay for diagnostic testing? Did they charge you $150, whatever, to test? No. Did you pay anything? Well, I was in for a recall, and, they, and I told them my problem, and they quoted me out coils and plugs. Nobody looked at this car? Well, they were back there with the recall. Yes, but they didn't charge you anything extra. No. They didn't do anything to the car then. They guess well, the service advisor. Like, the hey. service advisor just <laughs> pulled some random comment out of their rear end and said, "Yeah, it sounds like ignition coils and spark plugs." Here's a quote. That's what the service advisor did. I said, "Ma'am, those technicians don't work for free. The recall didn't cost you anything because the manufacturer is paying for the recall. The manufacturer is paying for the technician. The technician's not going to do extra work for free. No technician does work for free. We know they do, but." This is what I'm trying to make a point to her. So the fact that you didn't charge anything says they didn't do any testing. I am telling you, you do not need ignition coils based on all of the evidence. Well, why would they tell me that? They pulled it out of their rear end. They pulled it out of their rear end. And they, they all would, the evidence. She hung up on me. They'd probably pop up and say, oh, and while we were in there, we noted it needs an oil change too. But they got their money for the ignition coils and the plugs, right? That's skeezy. I, that's, that's another level do. of skeezy. I, maybe dealerships, you know, <laughs> that's a different level of skeezy. She hung up on me. We have a, a lady that calls everybody that was in for service. She calls she, her, her boyfriend ends up picking up the car. She didn't even want to come in. She was so upset. She didn't even want to come into the shop. Her boyfriend comes in, picks up the vehicle, leaves. The lady calls back, uh, calls and says, how was your service, this, that, and the other? She says, I think they were sexist because I'm a woman. That They were telling me that I don't need ignition coils. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not your job to know what you're it, talking about. It's not even that. Gender has nothing to do with it. You're an idiot. That's all it is. You are stupid. And that can spread across age, gender, all the demographic information. You are a stupid person. Now... Where you have a certain level of stupidity. That was my point. 
<laughs> it took 10 minutes to make that point. I just needed to get that story out. She, <laughs> she, had, she had this accent, too. I, I think it was from California. That's what I thought. But I don't know. <laughs> Californians have an accent. Californians have an accent, right? Uh, it's supposed to be accent neutral, but okay. No, they are not accent neutral. The Californians have got a twang. A Californian twang. They come in. We, we're flooded with them in Kansas City. I'm going to make all the Californians upset. See Land Rover guy? We were equal opportunity haters. Anyway, <laughs> Californians are flooding Kansas City <laughs> with their effervescent presence. <laughs> we love having them there. Anyway, they're flooding Kansas City. And all of a sudden, all these people are coming in. And they have these accents. And it's like, a person's from California. I can tell. Anyway, 100% she's from California. 100%. She's from California. <laughs> She's got an accent. So, but I mean, what's the point of all that? I mean, what are you? I'm just saying, Californians have an accent. But he I, doesn't I, think so. I understand, but I mean, what's? Are you the... from California? No, I'm from Utah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't heard a Utah. You just in... he sighed a sigh of relief. You just couldn't hear it. No, no, I just you I was said, I'm I was from Utah. I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, like, I was setting myself with. Well, well, okay. I probably funded this guy. Let me ask real quick. <laughs> so, so one of my instructors, yeah. Shannon, he's he's from the Los Angeles area. Okay. And everywhere we go, that's not California. He hangs his head and says, "Yeah, I'm I'm from California." <laughs> so we we uh, we taught in Georgia, uh, in the Atlanta area. Yeah. And he says he's from California and. One of the guys was getting ready to unload on him, and I said, he reloads his own bullets. <laughs> and then the whole conversation changed. Oh, well, right. if you reload, you're okay. Right, right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Well, so where do you think we're going? Where's the next step? Well, I think, uh, you know, fixing modules uh, is is an EEPROM work and that kind of thing. I think it's going to grow. Uh, unfortunately... United States of America is starting to feel like a third world country. I mean, they've been doing yeah. this in South America and yeah. in the Eastern Bloc countries for years. Yeah. Because they can't get parts. They don't have right to repair. Yeah. They can't get programming software unless it's, you know, hacked through a VPN. Not even third world countries. We're talking to dudes from Australia, the Garage yeah, Network. Guys. Holy cow. Yeah. And they're like, man, oh, insane. yeah. We have to go to those Eastern Bloc, former Eastern Bloc countries to get some of our information. Wow, yeah. we don't have right to repair like you guys have in the states. Like we don't have access to that information, right? So right. we got to do what that's we got to do. So, so that's uh, you know I think uh, we're running into more of that. And the, the other concern I have is: have you had to buy uh, a PCM used or uh, or remand for like a '98 Jeep with a four liter? Yeah, it's been a while. If you can find one, they're eight or nine hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. And it's been through the the mill so many times. You never know what codes right. are going to pop the up. The ones with the little no, it was the older ones that had the screws in the front of the case that would push into the board itself. The support it's probably still that one. It's the one with the the weird like angle on the connector and those little solder points with the the right and the, with a 90 degree on them they would have hairline cracks and so you'd randomly feel bump it stop working well why or the asd relay would stop yeah grounding yeah. like why yeah. well it's, there's a little crack on one of that connection those things were junk so, yeah still are <laughs> well so didn't didn't like one company 
buy a bunch of that stuff up. They they found some in surplus or something. I heard a story about that, that they bought up a whole bunch of Chrysler modules. I mean, thousands and thousands of them. And they were the only person you could get any of those modules from, and they were junk. But you could buy them, and then you could fix them because they were reman. Yeah. <laughs> the, the The problem isn't necessarily that they're 98 and you can't find them, and they're $800. Is that that car needs to probably go in the junkyard. Like, it needs to go. It's the, oh, the 18 body control module because the push start system doesn't work. Yeah. And that 18 sitting in my lot for six months. I've, I've got a modules on back order. And yes, we, we bought a bunch of random EPROM. The, the, the problem was the MCU needed to be cloned and we just could not find enough information on this like little tiny micron chip specific brand micron chip we could not find enough information to be able to successfully clone it into a used module i bought like three used modules i'm like we're gonna figure this out oh man we're still working on it well i mean we ended up getting a new one have you looked at io terminal he's got an io he's got like an orange so so io terminal does it through the the network now 18 might be a problem because they went it it might have been a 16 it, it, they went yeah. from global A to global B, but if it's a global A this is module, a Civic. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying a yeah. GM. Okay. No, no. Yeah, GMs. No, GM, yeah, GMs. We got down. Yeah, <laughs> far easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was maybe if a PCM had failed, you know, we might have been able to to get this thing to work. It was like a 16 Civic. Mm. It was a body control module. We needed to get one, and they were on forever back order. Good luck. Yeah. Card does not run. It'll start sometimes, then it won't turn off, and then you're disconnecting the battery, and then it may not start again for a, a week. It was so well, inconsistent. You know, here's the thing: is we, we've got a uh, Chrysler minivan that's a loner, and and we're seeing more and more of this. Right, like these vehicles are becoming so complex that they're not drivable. Right, I've, I've got vehicles that have radios that are causing massive parasitic draws. They die overnight. I've got vehicles that are, and, and that's something we've dealt that's with a for a long time. Yeah. But I mean, here's the thing is now it's not available. The part's not available. HVAC doesn't work in the car. Guess what? The car's not drivable anymore. I can, I can live with a parasitic draw. Like some people just say, oh, I'll just jump it off every morning or whatever. Mm. I, I don't have heat. Right? It gets cold where we are. It gets yeah. hot where we are. The vehicle's not drivable. The, the Chrysler minivan. The windshield wipers run all the time. I don't have a speedometer. The vehicle's not drivable. You know what I'm saying? Like we're we're getting to the point that it's so dependent on the system. What was wrong with it? It's a Tip cluster. Oh, it was the cluster? Yeah, the cluster's bad in it. Hmm. Eric's messing with it. We you do a lot of cluster one. like uh, tear down, rebuilds, replacement of the individual components on the cluster. Not a whole lot. I've yeah. I've done some GMs that uh, I've been able to reflow solder and that kind of thing on. But uh, the, the, there's a lot of people doing clusters. Yeah. So yeah. once in a while I'll do them. But not the problem is like they, I get weirded out sending it into like one of the cluster companies. You know what I'm saying? It's because they're, and it, it's because I understand their business model is built around, there's three pattern failures on that cluster. 09, 11, Honda CRV. This is what fails. If you don't have that problem, but you know it's in the cluster. What do you do? I can't send it to one of those. And there's 700 of them that will all do the exact same thing, different prices or whatever. And then you'll have one random company who will say, oh, you know, I know that problem. We fix it. But it's $800. 
well, cluster's nine. And now you have to decide, well, do we just spend the $100 more and get a new cluster, the $800? Now they're still available, but had they stopped making them available, the cluster, now, yeah, the $800 is worth it. And I just, I get weirded out because they, it's it's great. I'm, I'm glad that you guys can fix the same three things on this module because the same three things fail on every single module. And so if it's one of those three things, I don't mind sending it in. But if we're into it, like if it, I'm into it that I'm looking at module repair or something like this is a weird problem. I don't get lucky that it's just a, it's just one of these three things. I don't get that kind of lucky. So I got something weird going on. There's, there's a guy I work with, uh, Spartan. Have you ever worked with Spartan over mm-hmm. in, I think he's in St. Louis. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. His name's Eric. Okay. And I think it's called Spartan. He does a lot of GM BCMs and, and, uh, clusters and mm-hmm. that kind of thing uh might want to look him up he's a pretty smart guy but I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of not necessarily clusters but i'm thinking more in terms of circuit board circuit issues yeah. so it's no longer well i'm gonna clone this module now it's it's the uh i'm gonna tear into this thing look for what failed on the circuit board and you know reroute some some solder or replace this capacitor that's failed or you know actual circuit board repair uh mario does it all the time mm-hmm. you see him you know replace hey this takes it apart sees hey this module's not available or it's five thousand dollars but it's just that capacitor melted and i'm going to check it to make sure that the traces are good and i'm going to replace that capacitor and i'm going to ship the car yeah that's awesome when you can do that i've i've tried some some different repairs like mm-hmm. a common one on the Chrysler is the, the alternator will short mm-hmm. and take out the driver. Yeah. And, uh, I've tried to replace that driver. It has like three or four sections on the back. And if you flow the solder into another one, it shorts it. And There's just nothing you can do. I, I mean, if I had the right equipment, maybe, mm-hmm. but do I want to spend a hundred thousand dollars to do these? Yeah. Not unless I'm doing, you know, 50 a day. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I leave that to Cardone and some of the other guys. Uh, I know there's a lot of complaints about their product. And well, I was getting ready to say, so they're going to flow it into the other port anyway, and you're going <laughs> to send it back short. And it's going to be the same difference no matter what. So. But then there's like the Ford coil drivers. Yeah. If you can get it before it absolutely destroys the board, uh, yeah. you, uh, you call up or, or ring up, uh, David's son out at Wixie and tell him what you want. And he sends you everything you need from Taiwan and solder it up and you're good to go. Thank you for listening to the Changing the Industry podcast. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to set it to automatically download the latest episode. Our efforts with this podcast, the YouTube channel, and the Facebook group wouldn't be possible without the support of our awesome sponsors. So please take a moment, check them out by clicking on the links in the show notes.